we shouldn't underestimate the overwhelming power of the status quo. China wants to keep the status quo. South Korea wants to keep the status quo. And yes, North Korea wants to maintain the status quo while keeping their nuclear arsenal intact. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm joined by Mackenzie Eaglin. She is a resident fellow in the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on defense strategy, defense budgets, and military readiness. Jeff Lewis joins us on Skype. Jeffrey is a FP columnist and director of the East Asia Nonproliferation Program for the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies at Monterey. And by phone, Dr. David Lai is a research professor of Asian Security Studies at Strategic Studies Institute of the U.S. Army War College. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. Have episode ideas or comments? You can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us anytime. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. You know, I feel like maybe we should not be high above Washington's DuPont Circle, but actually beneath it, right below our offices, is the DuPont Underground, which is a decommissioned streetcar station that served as a fallout bunker for a short period of time. And sometimes they give tours and you can get in there. And given all the talk about North Korea right now and Trump's tweeting about fire and fury, And the rhetoric coming out of Pyongyang, uh, it seems like maybe we should uh, adopt safer quarters. So, I mean, what I want to get into today is the notion of war with North Korea. It feels imminent, and yet it also kind of feels like a joke. I mean, we're laughing about it a little bit now, but it's really there on the table. The North Koreans say they're going to start lobbing ballistic missiles at or near Guam, which is a U.S. 13,000 U.S. troops on a base in the Pacific. And, you know, we are making plans in foreign policy to figure out who's covering nuclear war and the imminent demise of millions of people this weekend. So what does war with North Korea look like? Mackenzie, since you're right here with me, I'm going to start with you. Let's We'll get to the notion of whether this is actually going to happen. But if a shooting war with North Korea kicks off, let's go through it. What is it how does it start? Well, thanks for having me. The challenge here is the multiplicity of scenarios, right? So would it include nuclear weapons right off the bat or not? Hopefully, probably not. Uh, Would it include chemical weapons, of which the North Korean regime is known to have plenty of, like VX, for example, sarin gas, all kinds of other scary, horrifying possibilities. Uh, Would it include that in the opening stages or not? Because I really think we'd be concentrated here in this conversation on the first 90 days, give or take. And that, I thought we were talking 90 minutes. <laughs> well, exactly. Well, that's right. The first 24 hours and first 90 days uh, is probably the right area to, to discuss. Assuming that those would not be a part of the conflict until later, and I don't think that they would given the massive level of artillery and naval capability of not just the U.S., but our ally South Korea, our treaty ally Japan, but also the North Koreans. You know, they've sunk South Korean warship in the past, so they, they've shown considerable um, land power uh, artillery uh, capability, including but not limited to missiles, for example. So I think it would be concentrated 
they would know if anything started that they would want to take out as much of Seoul as possible as quickly as possible. And the estimates are crazy, They're right? It's crazy. It's a million civilians in Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, would die within hours, they say. So Pentagon estimates, I, I'm sure that is out there somewhere. Pentagon estimates about 100,000 loss of life in, in Seoul in the first 24 hours and 300,000 U.S. and allied uh, KIA in the first three months of, of battle. That's probably a low estimate, depending on how this goes. The challenge for the U.S., right, it's, uh, you know, briefly I worked at the Pentagon. I worked in the War Plans Office, and they're pretty boring, actually, if you ever read one. But I started a couple years after 9-11, and so the two war plans at the time were still Iraq and North Korea before Gulf War. Oh, one three. down, one to go. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they're pretty boring, meaning they're, they're focused on the time-phased deployment of forces. Uh, and, but what you quickly discover in a conflict like one with uh, North Korea, which would be heavy on combined arms, meaning all of the services would be all in, you would need to call in your guard and reserve pretty, pretty rapidly and mobilize and swing to the theater. The challenge is this is the single theater farthest away from America. The continental United States uh, military leaders often refer to the tyranny of distance on the way to the Pacific Command. We are confronting that away game plus the challenges of a regime with nothing to lose. It would be really an ugly, violent, and bloody battle. And Americans haven't seen anything like this, well, since the last Korean War and the Vietnam War. Jeff, if war is about to happen, who shoots first? You know, it strikes me that, you know, maybe like Iraq as well, this is a, a preemptive war where the Trump administration comes in swinging. You've written for foreign policy about the the real sophistication and danger of North Korea's ballistic missiles and nuclear weapons. So does the, you know, does the United States come in heavy and kick this off? I think that's a, I mean, that's the the question because the problem is, at least from my perspective, um, you know, when you look at what the North Koreans say and when you look at what defectors say and you look at the exercises they do, the North Koreans have this idea that if they wade around like Saddam did or if they hang out like Gaddafi did and, you know, let the U.S. use air power, that they're doomed. So they think that the way that they're going to win the war is by using large numbers of nuclear weapons on the first day to hit U.S. forces throughout South Korea and Japan, which is a sort of enormous escalation. The one piece is the North Koreans plan to go first. And then the other piece is the U.S. and the South Koreans, I don't think, plan to let the North Koreans go first, right? They want to try to kill Kim before he can give that order. Uh, and that's what the U.S. did at the beginning of Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, the U.S. did a decapitation strike on Dora Farm to try to catch Saddam. So, you know, I think both sides have plans to try to gain the initiative by acting before the other, but like one of them's wrong. Mackenzie here is talking about a, a, you know, a Pentagon war plan that goes on for three months or even longer. Is that right? That seems like a, you know, in a nuclear conflict where Trump seems to have little, well, he's saying the fire and a fury unlike the world has ever witnessed before. This may be a super hot war that goes on for a short period of time. Um, and as you said, the civilian casualties will be significant. David, your expertise is on China beyond East Asian security issues writ large. 
What is the Chinese angle in this? Obviously, they have been a patron and a supporter for of the Korean of the North Korean regime for a long time. They are not thrilled about the uptake in tensions and the implications for China's security are enormous. How does China play out uh, in a potential war scenario? I guess I need to make a disclaimer up front. Uh, it's my own personal view. It doesn't represent the U.S. government and the, the army as well. The question to China, I guess, um, I will come to that in three steps. The first one, I think that um, before we think about any military uh, operation, uh, we need to get over the strategic issue first. In I think in the face of this blatant North Korean threat, the president must take a stand. But the stand need to be presidential, uh, but not uh, rhetoric. And, and that will set the, the record uh, straight. In no uncertain terms, get Kim Jong-un to understand if he dares to learn to land a missile on U.S. territory, he should understand the consequences. So in no uncertain terms, the president should take a stand like that. On the other hand, the United States should also make clear to uh, Kim Jong-un and North Korea as well, the United States has no intention to invade that country. And 70 years of history has laid that proposition um, there that we are not going to do anything. Secretary Tillerson has made it recently as well. We are not going to change your regime. We are not going to invade your country. We should make that clear to, to North Korea so that they will not go any further in this provocation. Now, with that said, then, we also need to let China know we, we, we are not going to ask China for help because that's, the Chinese is not in their interest to do that. But we need to make China understand that if a war really starts in North Korea, China would not be spared. It is in their interest to have North Korea turn down its threat. So that China can do. But have China to help us solve the problem, that's a non-starter. So um, I think that, that is what, what I can uh, add to this conversation at this point. I will come back more. I want to weigh in here on the opening stages of a conflict here because uh, Jeff brought up the decapitation strike possibility, which is true, and that would certainly be an aim of military forces early on. But then separately from that, you would want to find and secure any and all nuclear weapons and materials, including chemical, biological, and any others. The regime knows that. And those are very different kinds of operations, taking down one guy and his team versus finding and locating things that are deeply, hardly buried, underneath the earth, in tunnels, networks. Our intelligence isn't that good. Our, plus, and mobile, too. They have and mobile. mobile ICBMs. Well. Thank you. Exactly. And our intelligence community is overwhelmingly, almost to the detriment, I would argue, of our foreign policy, overwhelmingly focused on finding, fixing, and finishing terrorists right now. Uh, and it, it calls into question about that balance of our intelligence community and what they need to, to be focused on. This is certainly an area. We don't know where they all are. So while we're trying to take out Kim and his best buddies— uh, our special forces and special operations forces would have a very difficult time doing this. We don't train often for that kind of a mission, and it's incredibly complicated and complex. You know, the other piece of this is we assume that the U.S. and the South Koreans are going to be doing this together. I mean, one of the fun things we track here, 
they think we might take too long and they may decide that they want to take that shot at Kim before we do. So there's actually sort of all kinds of complications here that I'm not sure we've really thought through. Jeff, is it is the U.S. even able to launch a devastating strike that eliminates the majority or a significant percentage of North Korea's offensive military capabilities? I mean, maybe a significant percentage, but I, I mean, the way I look at it is, if, you know, if you're thinking about 60 nuclear weapons, which I guess is the upper end of the bound that Toby Warwick reported, reported, if you probably get most of those 60, I mean, that still stinks. <laughs> yeah, one is still pretty bad. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, this is a case where we have to be perfect. And, you know, perfect is an unreasonable standard. So, and that puts beyond Seoul, Tokyo is at risk, right? Guam, and perhaps even the continental United States? I think New York and San Diego are in for it, yeah. So what's the status of you, of, you know, obviously the U.S. has, you know, big bombers and military squadrons on the Korean Peninsula. You've got submarines um, with nuclear missiles in those waters, though who knows where, but close enough to do damage, certainly. What about missile defense capabilities? I know that, you know, the South Koreans have a U.S. system called the Terminal High Altitude Air Defense System, THAAD. And um, recently, there was a test of a missile interceptor from Elmansdorf Air Force Base, I believe, uh, that hit, uh, hit an ICBM after months and years of testing. Should any of this help us sleep better at night that we could actually – that the U.S. has the capabilities to shoot down, you know, Kim's missiles if they launch? If you're talking about ICBMs targeted against the United States, that's what the system in Alaska is designed to do. So, you know, it should be able to handle those cap those those threats. The problem is – you know, just the test record is a bit spotty. And so the plan is to salvo fire four or five interceptors at, at any incoming target. And, and you know, it, it raises this question of like, well, like, easy for the North Koreans to just outbuild the system. And it's pretty expensive to add interceptors. So, you know, if it's one or two, uh, you know, I feel okay about it. I don't feel great. Um, but, you know, sort of over the long term, I mean, if you have to pick whether you'd rather play offense or defense, I think I'd rather play offense. So if you were the Trump administration, what do you do? Take away the president's cell phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's part of me and I think everyone feels like Trump's rhetoric is um, – you know, A, ridiculous, uh, B, is ratcheting up the tensions. Um, but, you know, then you step back and you look, the, the Koreans have been using this kind of language for, I don't know, 10 years, right? This is sort of a, a, a common theme um, about drowning Americans in the sea of fire and targeting American cities uh, and Americans should not sleep soundly in their beds. David, you said that the American president needs to show resolve, not just rhetoric. But I think the Koreans, you know, my hunch is that the Koreans know that there is, as James Mattis said, I think an overwhelming preponderance of force here on the U.S. side. The North Koreans know that. Um, so what do you think – what do you think is behind the North Koreans, this new specific threat on Guam? 
if I can put you in their shoes for a little bit. Uh, sure, we can take that as also um, North Koreans' uh, rhetoric as well. Uh, but it could could be more than uh, rhetoric because they can shoot it, land it in waters close to Guam, and, and then somehow it will say, "I haven't touched you yet," and then you have no reason to respond in kind. Yeah. Uh, those kind of game can take place, but it's very dangerous. How is the United States to see whether that is uh, close enough? Or how close is close enough? In a military sense, that's no kidding business. Um, so if we have to respond, we have to respond. So um, with Kim playing fire like this, I think only the Chinese at this point can get to the North Korea and get to Kim and, and remind him of the consequences. Uh, China can do that. Now, China can come back to tell us they have been uh, advocating the two stand-down all along. Uh, they asked two sides to turn, turn, turn down the, the rhetoric uh, and then uh, keep calm and things that Chinese have been calling like that. But then it seems like Kim Jong-un is not listening to the Chinese. So I think China at this point really has a stake to launch a diplomacy as they have uh, done that repeatedly uh, in the past to get Kim Jong-un tone down his provocations, and then the United States, at this point, I think the president has done enough. Um, he doesn't have to do any more. Uh, the stand is very clear. Uh, no more rhetoric. It just make a presidential stand. That's enough. And it's important to have the Chinese to bring somehow some sort of stability back there. And, and then, as Tillerson has suggested, once they calm down, the United States uh, is willing to have dialogue with them. Then, so the best way is to prevent this war from, from happening because we understand the complexity of dealing with a nuclear-armed opponent. And that is all the purpose of North Korea having this arm is to complicate any um, invasion to this kingdom. Why don't the Chinese just you know, invite Kim Jong-un for a strategic conversation and get rid of him, put him under house arrest? And it seems like Beijing isn't particularly thrilled uh, with this young leader. You know, they, they've been a useful, I guess, foil and a strategic sort of buffer from the, you know, U.S. allies on the Korean Peninsula. But, you know, China doesn't seem, you know, they've, the, the Korean regime has been erratic for the past couple of years. They've been more aggressive and as you say, the Chinese really do have skin in the game here. Why can't they just eliminate Kim for us and, you know, it'll be all over? They'll put in place a military, you know, they'll put some of the commanders in place. They'll still preserve it. The U.S. will promise not to roll tanks in across the uh, 30th parallel. Is that, is that too, uh, too unlikely a scenario? Um, not at all. That will be the last thing Beijing wants to do. And because they insist it is the United States' problem with North Korea, not China's problem. And if they were to do whatever you suggest uh, just uh, in this question with Kim, then the problem then becomes China's problem. And that's the last thing China wants to do. In international relations, we have an old saying that a nation's immediate neighbor is its natural enemy. 
the Koreans and the Chinese have planned their problems for centuries, and Americans come and go. Why, why would, would we uh, see the Chinese have an interest to, to screw up its relationship with its immediate neighbor uh, or a, um, for an American from afar? It, it makes no sense. And then the Koreans will hate the Chinese for good. And then they have no choice. They, are, they start with, as neighbors. So the Chinese have been very careful not to uh, screw up its relationship with the Koreans, North and South combined. Um, in addition, we just need to bear in mind that China also have an authoritarian or, to some extent, dictatorial government. Um, why would they get rid of another one uh, of their similar kind? Their difference is only in degree, not in kind. Yeah, but it's not like a dictator's club all gets together and they hang out and they have beach parties. <laughs> but not in their interest to get rid of them because they can come back to undermine, to attack the Chinese, undermine the Chinese regime. So that, that certainly is not um, in their playbook to do that. And another thing is that the Chinese do not have strategic trust with the United States. Forty years after normalizing its relationship with the United States, the Chinese today still worry about the United States doing harm to China. And China has problem in keeping Taiwan in the fold and then withstanding United States uh, interference in this matter. And also the Chinese don't like American, uh, in their terms, interference in their affairs in South and East China Sea. So how, how could the Chinese to convince the North Korean leaders that it is in their interest to trust Americans. I don't think they would do that. But to get the Chinese understand that if North Korea continue this fire playing thing and actually provoke the United States to respond with war, then China cannot be spared. Even though the United States have no intention to repeat the mistakes made by General MacArthur back then, this nuclear warfare is going to have fallout on China. China has an interest to prevent this war from happening. So then that we can have the Chinese to remind Kim, Kim Jong-un. Kim Jong-un to this day has not met with the Chinese President Xi Jinping yet. We need to bear that in mind as well. The Koreans don't like the Chinese. The reason they are not on at each other's throat is because Americans are standing in between. Okay. We need to bear this, all of these problems in mind uh, before we, we uh, rush to the Chinese for help. They're not going to help us. They only, they only will be in their own interest to stabilize the situation and prevent a war from happening. All right. Well, you've poured cold water on my Chinese assassination of Kim Jong-un plan. <laughs> but all right, let's go back to the Guam scenario. And, and Mackenzie, maybe you can, you know, since you were writing war plans in the Pentagon, you can help our listeners understand what happens if, you know, this weekend or in the next couple of days, the North Koreans really do lob an ICBM, you know, as they said, 30 to 40 kilometers off the coast of Guam. Now, let's say it doesn't have a nuclear missile. Of course, there's nothing there. But they're just demonstrating, you know, their capability to put a missile where they want and close to 13,000 U.S. troops and a bunch of vacationing Koreans and Japanese and other tourists and Guamanians living on this peacefully on this island. 
what happens then? Is, is that enough of a provocation that the U.S. has to respond in some conventional way? I think we should go back to talking about puffing up my resume from the past, which uh, <laughs> uh, so as a as a intern reader of the war plan. So, OK, um, Guam, let's go through a little bit about their plan that they've been talking about, which is launching these four ballistic missiles over specifically over the Japanese mainland. Right. And then landing in like a rectangle shape around Guam, not actually hitting the island itself, because they're trying to demonstrate, as they do with each of these tests, their technical prowess to show President Trump and others that um, they are gaining in capability and specificity and technicality at, with each test. Um, they tested this missile specifically in May already. So then the question is, what would we do if they're not actually impacting islanders, natives, Americans? No, US forces. no one dies, but people get freaked out. Exactly. So there would have to be a response of some sort. Given these types of missiles, it does not have to be a nuclear response. We all hope it's not a nuclear response. Uh, it doesn't even have to be a direct conventional response either. Okay. So because in April, Trump showed his willingness to respond. He lobbed, what, 52 Tomahawk cruise missiles into Syria in response to this chemical gas attack that defense intelligence agencies said was came from the Syrian regime. And, you know, it killed a couple people. It knocked out an airport for a few days. Arguably, there was some, you know, capacity loss on the Syrian side. But he has shown a willingness to use forces as a teaching tool. Don't fuck with us. We can do a lot more. But here, you know. Anyway. Yeah, in uh, in the Pentagon world and defense-minded people, it was more bark than bite, that Syrian attack, meaning it was a very isolated, highly choreographed and, tele you know, just advanced notification. It was a base that didn't have a lot of strategic significance at that particular moment. Russian forces, I don't remember all the details now, but like weren't there. And no, they told the Russians to get lost. To get lost, yeah. right. So, I mean, it, it was intended to send a signal without really doing a lot uh, in terms of sort of battlefield damage and, and response and assessment. And we knew that the Syrians were not going to respond. They weren't going to come back and attack U.S. forces. This was a... A, a lesson, but that's certainly not the case with North Korea, right? If they launch a missile, and Trump comes back and decides to, you know, lob, uh, you know, a couple missiles at the at their nuclear testing facility, right, or their big ICBM launch pads. Right. Well, right. So you would hope that the same team that advised him how to take such a measured and limited response to the Syrian attack. Uh, would similarly approach the challenge in North Korea and basically saying, you know, no loss of life on this side should equal no loss of life, but strong signal sending and et cetera on the U.S.'s part. Uh, I would hope that they would use that same kind of model going forward because the minute the shooting war starts, right, it's it's the whites of their eyes and the it doesn't matter because the whole thing just – it just goes down the drain from there. I, I, and the Pentagon, believe it or not, knows this, I think, better than any other federal agency. They are the last group of people that want any sort of hot war whatsoever on the peninsula or near it. Yeah, if I can jump in, I, I just I think that's such an important point, right, that we can design all of these things from the comfort of our chairs. But when you actually do it, um, you know, stuff gets out of control. Sorry, that was. Yes, you're right. 
So Jeff, so I mean, what do you see as a what do you see as a proportional U.S. response? Say, uh, you know, a, a warning shot over the bow or into the bow from the U.S. if the Koreans are to actually send this missile toward Guam. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, you know, one thing you can do is you can think about trying to shoot them down. You know, normally I I advise strongly against that, but you know, when they're sort of shooting it all the way to Guam, where we have assets, and I'd probably put a few more assets down there. Um, you know, they are sort of asking for that. But you know, I the problem is we do a lot of that symbolic stuff already. You know, we we do large military exercises that we like to in, in order to send precisely that message to them. So, you know, I don't know that we have a lot of responses that we don't already use a lot. Um, I mean, I've been a little bit critical. I think we kind of overuse them sometimes. And, and it shows in a case like this where, you know, we've done almost all of the symbolic things we can do, which is then why we start talking about other options that maybe don't look as good. So what are those other options? Well, I, I, I don't even want to propose them. Oh, I mean, come I, on. No, give us some give no, us some fun here. no. No, no, because I, I mean, I, I think Mackenzie's point is exactly the correct one. You know, in, in 1969, the North Koreans shot down this U.S. reconnaissance aircraft, killing all the airmen aboard it. Nixon administration wanted to retaliate for obvious reasons, including by hitting the airfield in Wonsan, where the fighter aircraft took off. By the way, that's the same airfield in Wonsan where they do a bunch of missile tests today. But the problem then, and it's worse now, is how you, if you're going to start an attack, how do you let the North Koreans in on the idea like attack that's meant to sort of humiliate them, but, you know, not actually hurt anybody. You just you can't. Right. I mean, you're going to you're going to run the risk. That they're going to be confused about what's going on uh, and that they're going to think it's the beginning of a general attack and that you're going to get an escalation. So, you know, we'll do some more bomber overflights. Uh, you know, I'm sure the president will tweet some more mean things and we'll get another round of Seb Gorka interviews on TV. But beyond that, man. <laughs> Well, um, let, let me uh, intervene a little bit here. Um, just from no military experience perspective, I, I could sound very uh, naive. The, the first reaction to the uh, the missile coming to Guam, uh, from my perspective, would be just interdicted and, and uh, blow it up in, in uh, mid-air. Now, I don't know if that violates any international rule or law at all. Um, and but from my own non-expert uh, perspective, non-military perspective, that seemed to be my first intuitive uh, answer to that. Well, if it really land on our territory, uh, I would say when I, what I mean by the president taking a stand is that we'll, we will not just res respond in kind, but can go beyond. And so that certainly uh, would mean we will inflict that that's in 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 essence um, a declaration of war. So North Korea, Kim Jong Kim Jong Un should understand understand that. Now he may not um, see that as serious as we mean by serious. He may not see it that way, because look at it that way. Before we uh, evicted Saddam Hussein from Kuwait uh, back in Gulf War One. We actually uh, mobilized and deployed 600,000 troops in uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, but now we don't have any uh, mass force uh, in the Korean Peninsula. And Kim Jong-un Kim, Kim Jong uh, may not believe that is really serious. And then short of sending troops into 
North Korea, we can only use long-range bombing, surgical strike type of thing uh, to to do that. And how effective would uh, would be? Um, no, that's everybody's guess at this point. Um, so those are kind of the the scenario uh, can play out in this sense. I guess we. We just need to make it clear to, to North Korea so it will stop it from continuing this kind of play with fire thing. I mean, I think what everyone's worried about is, and, and what we've been talking about here is the potential for escalation, right? It starts off small. It starts with a war of rhetoric. Um, you know, the U.S. and uh, its allies. Uh, you know, Mackenzie, you talked about the downing of the Cheonan, which was the South Korean warship that the North Koreans sunk a few years back. And South Korea did nothing about it. There was a slap on the wrist, um, but they did not respond at all in kind. And that's because there is a fear that escalation is real. So the North Koreans send a missile towards Guam. Trump reacts with some angry tweets, calls it an act of war. You know, I think, you know, we all say that Kim Jong-un is this sort of, you know, rotund 20-something-year-old madman. But he's not crazy enough, nor are the generals around him, to know that they will survive an actual war with the United States. I think that that's pretty clear. So what are they, what are they banking for here? I mean, I don't want to – I'm not sure – we should get into the scenarios of how to back down away from this. That's not as much fun as playing out the, an imminent nuclear war. Um, but they certainly know they're playing with fire. Yeah. Um, I also want to add one more thing. is that At this point, the United States, President Trump, should send a special envoy to China. Not, uh, not, through, not to, um, to get in the air and get in Chinese face and, and get all this publicity out there. But he sent Dennis Rodman last month. <laughs> that, that actually, when Dennis Rodman said uh, Kim Jong-un would like to uh, place a call with Obama, he should actually uh, make the call there. Then that's going to uh, make him uh, embarrassing. Well, Trump has said that he would meet under the right circumstances with Kim Jong-un. It's hard to see that happening, you know, anytime soon. Um but the overture has been made. I mean, Trump says a lot of things, so who the hell knows? You know, I, I guess the question I still have is how to prevent this from escalating up to a point where the U.S. doesn't have to use overwhelming force resulting in the deaths of millions of North Koreans and the use of nuclear weapons that we haven't, you know, seen before. Yeah, at this point, I think a middleman has to come into play. That is China. Um, it's, again, I want to emphasize China is not going to help us solve the problem, but it can kind of help calm down this rhetoric. So there are some other options, but I think we got to go to the heart of the strategic problem here, which is exactly as you laid it out, Ben, which is understanding the nuance of what everybody really wants out of this, which I know is lacking at the White House. But not everybody around the president lacks that ability to take the time to think it through. So we shouldn't underestimate the overwhelming power of the status quo. China wants to keep the status quo. South Korea wants to keep the status quo. And yes, North Korea wants to maintain the status quo while keeping their nuclear arsenal intact. In fact, 
That is why they have it and are developing it. It's so in the in the regime's mind that they will protect the survival of the regime. I mean, the, there are jokes at the Pentagon before uh, the world got really complicated with ISIS, and then sort of all these competitions, short of war with Russia and Iran and other uh, nation states that. We longed for the days where we understood sort of basic power uh, competitions and, you know, uh, predictable uh, but scary madmen in regimes. And it was often said, like Saddam, like Gaddafi, uh, like the uh, not just Kim Jong-un, but his father. The good old days. The good old days where we kind of knew what was going to happen or at least what they wanted. And we could work with that and build out a strategy from there. So if that is, you know— the. I think what is missing is a key part of this conversation is the overwhelming desire of the South Korean nation, right, that they do not want conflict of any sort. And it's shocking to me. Perhaps this phone call has been made. But if I'm the South Korean president, I would have not put I would not have hung up the phone with President Trump in the last 24 hours. I would just like kept it on a live speaker somewhere because it's <laughs> it's that important to their country to not let this get into anything, uh, anything even close to conflict. OK, so putting that sort of aside, then let's talk about the options short of, you know, your objective here, which is presumably to maintain the status quo, not go to war of any kind. Um, Yes, I understand the desire to want to prevent nuclear progress. So that brings us to possibilities. Remember our good buddy uh, Israel who helped uh, carry out that covert strike of Iran's nuclear facility. Uh, There's a reason it was Israel, Israel and not America. But of course, they did it with our permission, with our intelligence, with our lots of other things. But then there was also the Stuxnet. Uh, virus, right, that President Obama approved, got some people in trouble. But, um, you know, it was like a cyber weapon that stopped the centrifuges, uh, started incinerating. To demonstrate those kinds of capabilities would be very effective, I think, just to show either slow the rate of their growth in the program or just that we have that capability and we would use it. And then, of course, back to missile defense. And if if you guys really want me to get nerdy, I can walk through all the different types and kinds. But uh, not all missile defenses are equal. Uh, some are boost phase, you know, some are different ranges and uh, capabilities. And uh, I think we need more of all of them since this is not a weapon that actually kills anything or anyone. It just simply defends against an attack. Jeff, what you've written for for us again and again, and, you know, you've been a the sort of wise man and the Cassandra on this for a long time, is that you know, maybe North Korea is too far gone. You know, Mackenzie's mentioning these early attacks from the Israelis and, you know, U.S. cyber attacks on uh, nascent early stage nor- nuclear weapons development in Iran and Syria and Iraq, um, where we went after, uh, you know, the beginnings of a nuclear program. But, you know, You've talked about estimates of the North Koreans having, you know, 60 up to 60 nuclear weapons. And we know the delivery systems are pretty good and pretty sophisticated at this point. I I don't see and I'm not the expert here, but I don't see a way to eliminate that program in any other way except to play. Maybe, maybe McKenzie's right. Maybe it's just playing defense. And as David said, you know, pushing the Chinese and others to Go back to the negotiating table and keep a status quo so that no one dies. Yeah, I mean, my goal at this point is reducing tensions so that we live long enough to figure out what the hell to do with this problem. You know, I my doctoral work was on the Chinese nuclear program. And Americans love to imagine that, like, we played some important role uh, either as bad guys in pushing the Chinese in this direction or, you know, like – 
whatever. And the Chinese kind of love that story too. But the reality is, I, and I think the North Koreans are the same way, the Chinese wanted this capability and there wasn't anything we were going to do that would speed them up or slow them down. And I think it's more or less the same with the North Koreans. I mean, I, I do think that there were periods when the program was still uh, uncertain for them, where they might have made a deal because they didn't know it was going to work. But I think it's been a long time now that they knew this program was going to work. They knew they were going to get there. And, you know, like, which would you rather have, you know, a, a promise on paper from the United States or the nuclear weapons? I'd, I'd rather have nuclear weapons if I were Kim Jong-un. So I, I do think we're we're in this mode where we're playing defense, um, you know, and, and you know, I, I <laughs> boy, if I were the South Koreans, especially, I, I would be building a lot of defenses. But I think the bigger thing is you kind of got to get your head around the fact that we're now in a deterrent relationship with North Korea and they're going to be able to hold cities in the U.S. at risk. And that stinks. And, you know, it would have been great if we could have headed it off, but we didn't. And, you know, here we are. It's a good thing that you live in a tiny little coastal backwater, unlike us in D.C. David's in the War College, so that's got to be a target at some point. Oh, yeah. No, I'm just going to get to see the it's just going to be like one more gorgeous sunset over the water. <laughs> All right. Well, on that lovely note, uh, I think we'll wrap it up. We'll have you all back when the missiles start firing over Guam. ER nerds, get in touch with us. Please suggest more topics, and we'll do our best to hear you out. Thanks, all. See you again soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to the ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.